Hello again, fight fans. Welcome to episode number 238 of the Neutral Corner Boxing Podcast. I am your host, Michael Montero for The Ring Magazine, ringtv.com, and the Ring Digital YouTube channel. We got a big, big show for you guys today. Ray Flores is going to join us. And of course, uh, he called the big Charlo doubleheader last weekend. He did an international broadcast. I love Ray. He's one of my favorite guys in the sport. He's going to be on later, and we got that big doubleheader to review. Also, a lot of other action uh, around the world, in, in London, over in um, in Europe. So we'll get to all that in a little bit. But before that, I want to remind you guys, as always, please make sure you give a thumbs up. Make sure that you're uh, subscribed to the Ring Digital's YouTube channel. Click that notifications bell. Make sure that you're uh, tweeting out the show leaving ratings, reviews, everything that you could do, and make sure you check out the recap that I do that will include uh, quotes from our guest and quotes from the callers on ringtv.com. It's usually posted about 24 hours after the live video goes on uh, Ring Digital's YouTube channel. So that's it, guys. Uh, 238. This is episode 238 for October 3rd. We are already in October. This year's flying by, which is great because 2020... It hasn't been that great, (laughs) but um, there have been some good things this year, and uh, I think the last quarter of the year is going to be really, really awesome, and it kicked off this weekend. We had a huge weekend of boxing, and it's going to kick off a good, strong schedule through the end of the year, but as, um, as I talk about 2020 and the fact that, yeah, there's some nasty stuff going on, you know, we got the COVID thing, we got the divisiveness in the media with the election and all that, the presidential presidential election. Uh, There's also been some very positive things. You guys know that I got married this year and also just announced today officially that I've been accepted as a full member of the Boxing Writers Association of America. So uh, that's awesome. BWAA, I'm a full member. I will be a voter in in the International Boxing Hall of Fame going forward. And it's something that I've known for a minute, but I really couldn't announce it publicly, but I kind of had to wait until they announced it officially before I could talk about it here on my show. If you had asked me two, three years ago, do I want to be in the BWAA? I probably would have said no. I'm very skeptical about joining organizations like that and not just in boxing, but everywhere. But every now and then I decide, okay, this is the time. I'm a member of the SAG after union because of some of the entertainment work I've done on, on television and stuff like that. Um, commercials, TV shows, movies, stuff like that. So uh, I am a member of one union officially, and now I don't know if you can call the BWAA a union or not, but if they are, then I'm a member of two unions. And, um, you know, maybe I could have been a member a few years back, but I just kind of wasn't there, wasn't ready. It felt like it was time. It felt like, you know what, I want to be on that vote for the International Boxing Hall of Fame. And, um, it's just time. I'm at that point in my life. I'm a mature married man now. So uh, congrats to myself and thank, congrats to all of you guys who uh, have been supporting me. And, um, you know, also congrats to the haters. I saw uh, BWAA tweeted it out on their Twitter profile and a little handful of people that just don't like me. Boy, did they lose their shit today. And uh, I don't follow any of these people, but a few of you guys, you know, uh, screenshotted the uh, the comments. Some of them have blocked me, so I can't even see what the hell they tweet. And, uh, you know, I used to get mad at that stuff, and now I just laugh my ass off. It's just awesome. 
You know, people say a lot of things about me that are untrue. Uh, oh, it's only a handful of them. Um, and, you know, there's really nothing I could do about that. But the people that matter, which is you guys watching and listening, which is the, the voting panel at the BWAA, which, by the way, haters, elected me unanimously into the organization. You know, the people that actually matter, the people who pay my salary, they know the truth. So that's all that matters to me. Anyway, guys, if you haven't picked up the latest issue of Ring Magazine, here it is. I finally got it in the mail. The Manny Pacquiao Special Edition issue. This is a collector's item. This is going to sell out. I've been telling you guys about this, okay? That out, we might already be sold out. If we're not, we're close. You're probably going to have to go to the Ring store. Of course, if you can't get it at your local bookstore or whatever, go to the Ring store online. And find it, all right? And get a couple copies because this is going to be a collector's item that you're going to see at sports memorabilia trade shows decades from now. It's going to sell for a lot more than the current cover price. Trust me. Manny Pacquiao is a generational figure. I think in many, many ways, he is the 21st century embodiment of Muhammad Ali in how important he is to the Filipino people. You think of how important Muhammad Ali was to the African-American people and really all Americans, right? Uh, there, there was, you know, great social injustice and things going on during Ali's era that he stood up and fought for. And he meant so much to people who weren't even boxing fans. There's a lot of that in Manny Pacquiao. He means so much to so many people who aren't even boxing fans. And much like Ali, how many boxing fans did this man right here, Manny Pacquiao, create? And is still creating, doing his thing in his 40s. And yeah, I'm plugging the hell out of this issue because guess what? I contributed to it. Check out my piece called A Wild Ride on the, just a little bit of the, the background of the story between uh, Freddie Roach and Manny Pacquiao. I spoke with Freddie Roach for this piece. I also spoke with Steve Kim, who you guys know is a great friend of mine. And Steve uh, works out, still works out the wild card all the time. And he was kind of there for that wild ride. He saw the past 20 years, you know, from when Manny first started training there to where he is now and how things have changed. And I talked to Freddie about that. I talked to Steve about that. I added some of my own thoughts and put it together in this piece. So it was truly an honor of mine. I mean, every time I post for the magazine, it's an awesome feeling, but being in a special edition issue like this that people are going to be showing to their kids, to their grandkids years from now, that's awesome. And for that to coincide with my full membership, not auxiliary membership, full membership to the BWAA to receive that letter from the International Boxing Hall of Fame to say, hey, you're a voter now. That's pretty awesome. Been pretty damn awesome. So as I say, again, 2020, not all bad, ladies and gentlemen. There's some good stuff happening this year. Just keep grinding. Keep working your ass off. There's going to be haters. There's going to be people that don't get you, that don't like you. But in the end, hard work always pays off. All right. Enough about me. Enough about me. Yes, it's my show, but this isn't about me. Let's get to boxing. All right. A couple of quick news items. Not a whole lot on the news front. It's a lot of rumors. I mean, I know you guys, some of you out there might want me to talk about uh, Manny Pacquiao and Conor McGregor. Not going to do it unless you call in. If you guys call in and you want to talk about that, we can talk about it. But, um, you know, honestly, that's a rumor. That fight could happen, but I'm not banking on it quite yet. If it happens, we'll talk about it then. Okay. So, um, 
Miguel Burchelt and Oscar Valdez. That is a fight being discussed for December 12th. And I like that fight. I like it a lot. I think that's a damn good matchup. And um, it's not official. They're talking about it. But if that can get done, we know that's a mandatory situation. I know there's a lot of people out there that don't think Oscar Valdez has a real good chance against Burchelt. I happen to think he does. I think that, yeah, do I favor Burchelt? Absolutely. And I favor him for several reasons. But Top Rank knows what they're doing. The Reynosas know what they're doing. And Oscar hasn't looked great in recent fights. But the little wrinkles he's trying to add to his game, he's had a few fights to work on some things. Uh, he'll have to revert back to his strengths against Burchelt, which I think will happen. And that's why it's going to be a good fight if it does come off. So I'm actually really looking forward to that one, man, um, if it happens. So the only other news item is, um, I don't even know if you consider this news, but I wanted to talk about uh, the Charlo brothers. And of course, uh, I'm going to get into their fight specifically this past Saturday. Big statement performances from both of them. But I wanted to talk about them being pound for pound. Because a few of you guys have tweeted about this. You've asked me about it and everything else. Um, I, I do find it interesting. Look, this is just how sports fans are. But if you have a poor performance, all the sports fans are going to just be tweeting and posting videos and stuff about, oh, this guy's overrated. This guy's washed up. If you have a really strong performance, it's the opposite reaction. Man, this guy's a legend. This guy's on the pound for pound list. And... As someone like me who watches every fight every weekend, and I try to keep a long memory, I don't try to stay focused on a short memory, I try to remember everything that's been going on in recent years in a fighter's career, I try not to overreact based on just the last performance. And I do think that there is a little bit of hyperbole. So this weekend, and again, I'll get into specifics here in a little bit, but Jermal uh, Charlo beats Sergei Derevyanchenko. And immediately, the comparisons to Gennady Golovkin start up because Gennady's this polarizing figure with a lot of people, and the Charlos are polarizing figures with a lot of people. Uh, and maybe, you know, Golovkin's on his way out. The Charlos are on, on their way up. They've both recently fought Derevyanchenko with some similar results and some different results, but those uh, conversations started almost instantly right after the fight. But people were talking about you know, is Jamal Charlo pound for pound? I don't think anyone was really, really putting him on their list yet. But I did hear people saying Jamal Charlo is the best middleweight in the world right now. Everyone slow down. Slow down a little bit, okay? You, you can't just go off of who you think would win right now, the eye test. You do have to factor in recent accomplishments. And just based on recent accomplishments... I think it's very fair to say Canelo Alvarez is the middleweight champion. Whether he fights again at 160 or not, I don't know. I think he will. I think if he works things out with the zone, he'll fight one more time against Golovkin possibly next year. Uh, it depends on what happens with that deal. But I think it's very possible he could fight once more at 160. But until he does decide to dump his title at 160 and officially campaign at 168, he's the middleweight champion. He's the top guy. And because Golovkin arguably beat him twice, beat Jacobs, beat Derevyanchenko, and I know some people don't think he won any of those fights, but most people do. And even if he didn't win all of them, he was competitive and highly competitive 
in all those fights, in every round of all those fights, okay? So considering all his accomplishments, he's the number two middleweight right now. That's undeniable. If you want to put Jamal Charlo at number three at middleweight, I ain't mad at you. That's where I rate him, okay? I'm on the ring ratings committee. We talked about that this weekend. I think that you got to rate Canelo number one. You got to rate Golovkin number two. And then you put Jamal Charlo right there at number three. Now, at 154, it's a different story. Jermel Charlo unified three titles against Jason Rosario Saturday. So he is not only the top junior middleweight in the world, he's the champion. I know Patrick Teixeira has one of the titles. I think it's what, the WBO title? Uh, Yeah, I think it's the WBO title. Okay, fine. He's a title holder. But the champ is Jermel Charlo. He's the top guy at 154, and a lot of people feel that him being the champion of a division, him claiming the Ring Magazine title at 154, that means he's a top 10 pound-for-pound guy, right? Well, what's interesting is everyone's saying that. Meanwhile, this same weekend, Marius Bradis defeated Uniel Dorticos to win the World Boxing Super Series Season 2 Cruiserweight Finale. He won the uh, Ring Magazine Cruiserweight Championship. It was a number one versus number two scenario, just like we saw with uh, Charlo and Rosario. So Brady sees the guy at Cruiserweight. Now, he did have a couple of fights that were decisions that many people felt should have went the other way that he benefited from. But he officially won those fights. You know, By the way, so have both Charlos. But uh, Brady is only official loss was a close competitive points loss to Alexander Usyk, who won, of course, uh, Season 1 of the World Boxing Super Series uh, Tournament and is a pound-for-pound level fighter, right? He was an Olympian, uh, gold medalist, and everything else. So Brady's, you can argue, especially if you look at his uh, opposition in the last few years, I, was, I think I put it down, like some of the guys he's fought, um, uh, I don't have his name, Zami, but uh, you guys know uh, Vlodacek, um, Marco Huck, uh, who am I forgetting? Of course, Usyk. He has fought better opposition than Jermel Charlo, and he's also become the man at Cruiserweight. So if you want to rate Jermel Charlo on the pound-for-pound pound list, but you're not considering Marius Bradys, I think that's slightly hypocritical. Now, for the record, I don't have either of them in my top ten. They're just outside the bubble. And I'm one of those guys that didn't want to put Josh Taylor in the top 10 just yet. And I took some heat for that. So I've been consistent on this. What I want to see is Josh Taylor fight Jose Carlos Ramirez. And the winner of that fight, no doubt, pound for pound, top 10. Hell, they might be top five, depending on how the winner wins that fight. Uh, I want to see uh, the same thing with Charlo. Now, Jermel Charlo, maybe there's no big names left for him at 154, but if he could fight Patrick Teixeira and grab that last title, cool. If he could fight, I still would like to see him fight Jarrett Hurd. I think Jarrett Hurd had a bad night at the office against Jason uh, J-Rock Williams, and I'd like to see, or sorry, Julian J-Rock Williams, and I'd like to see Hurd uh, and, and, and Jermel Charlo. I think that would be fun. I, I just want to see a couple more fights or see Mel... If you can't fight Teixeira and completely unify everything, move up to 160, right? But his 
best win. Now, he did beat Tony Harrison. Yeah, that's a quality win. But is Tony Harrison an elite-level fighter? He beat Jason Rosario. Yeah, it's a quality win. But is Jason Rosario an elite-level fighter? I don't know about that. And I'm not saying, again, I go back to the Marius Bredis example. Uh, beating uh, Glovaki, Vlodercek, those, those, uh, Marco Huck, those are good fighters, not what I would consider elite. So I'm not rating him the same way I'm not rating uh, uh, Charlo pound for pound quite yet. They're on the bubble. They're, they're like that. They're one victory away. However, if any of you out there rate Jermell Charlo in the top 10 or Josh Taylor or Marius Bradys, I ain't mad at you. You can absolutely make an argument that they rate there. You can make that argument, okay? So, um, look, these pound-for-pound lists, they're all about opinions, all of them. That's really what it's about. It's about opinions and how you feel, what is important to you, what you rate. Thank you for calling Colin. Hang in one second, guys. I have to call into... I have to get the phone lines open because I uh, forgot to before. I'm still in vacation mode, man. Welcome so, host. You are now in the host room. And all right, I'm in the host room. So now you guys can hear me on the, um, I can hear your calls. Uh, I got to get to a couple of super chats here. Sorry about that, guys. Trent Nonparil with two different super chats. Thank you so much, Trent. I appreciate that, my man. He says, uh, or he asks, is Caleb Plant or Demetrius Andre fighting again before year's end? Good question. I hope so, because they're two of the top fighters in their division. But honestly, I haven't heard anything. So I, I honestly, I cannot answer that question for you. But I would assume that by the end of the year, November, December, those guys should fight. Also, he asks, is Liam Williams getting a shot at Demetrius Andre? They've talked about that fight. They've talked about it, but I just, I don't know anything. Um, I think they've had pretty advanced talks too. All things considered, I wouldn't mind that fight for Andre. I really wouldn't. Also, uh, Vic Pasillas looked amazing on FS1 Friday night. Yes, he did. Uh, there was fights, what, f- Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday last weekend. Uh, that was just, I think we got another Wednesday night card on ESPN Plus this weekend that I'll talk about here in just a minute. And uh, Trent Nonparil, again, with another Super Chat, asks, uh, Vic Pasillas was a legitimate amateur star. Born and bred, Doc was dope. He he has fought no one until Wednesday night, but I still don't know why a major promoter never signed him. I don't know, man. It's hard to say. Um, with uh, certain prospects just kind of fly under the radar. And I could give you a million examples of it. Some prospects just fly under the radar. Others are scooped up in an instant. Sometimes it comes down to personality. Some promoters see something in certain fighters that they think they can promote. They see an angle, a story. Uh, maybe the kid's good looking. Maybe he's really good on the mic or really good on uh, on camera. Maybe he's got a good social media presence about him. He knows how to market himself. And then there's other guys that just kind of fall under the radar, you know, and promoters just don't see a vision there. You know what I'm saying? Uh, Trent says it might have something to do with his criminal record. Yep. <laughs> I mean, well, think about promoting a guy, you know what I'm saying? Uh, from East LA, um, you know, look, there's plenty of fighters with criminal records, but the one thing about the boxing business that I've learned is that, um, 
people talk, people talk, and you get reputations very, very quickly in this business. People talk uh, under the radar, behind closed doors, people send DMs to each other. When I say people, I'm talking about people that matter, network people, promoters, uh, top managers, they all talk. So if you have a reputation, people will talk, hey man, watch out for this guy, watch out for that guy, I heard something, I saw something, be cautious. And maybe there's just uh, a lot of caution with the kid. Now, if he reels off a couple great performances like he had last week, he'll get scooped up. He'll get scooped up. Don't worry about that. I should say he'll get picked up. Okay, um, let's see. All right, Jack, I think you're on the phone. We could do a very quick call, my man, because I got to get Ray on here in a few minutes. But I'll jump over to your call, and um, then I got to get back to the fight review. So let's go to uh, 317. You're on TNC. Go. Hey, man. That's, uh, did you know it was me for, uh, from the chat or from my area code or both? Both. Both. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah, real quick, man. I just wanted to say uh, last night, I'm pretty sure uh, you saw the conversation on Twitter I had. I was saying how I personally don't believe Jermel Charlo is top 10 pounds to pound after that performance just because, like I was saying to someone else, he's like, well, if you unify, then that's uh, that's pretty good. It, like, uh, it's a big accomplishment. And I was like, I mean, it is. But the fact, I don't think 154, I think 154 is a trash division. Yeah, I can get shit for that. But, like, I was saying, I was giving that comparison to Dimitri Bivol, and I was saying how Dimitri Bivol, like, uh, I rate him higher than Jermel Charlo because he has beaten the better names. That Would you agree with that? Like, Bivol has beaten better names than Charlo, uh, Jermel? Perhaps he's beat better names, but I would say that Jamel unifying titles and the number one versus number two matchup, I rate him higher right now. I don't rate him ten, top 10 pound for pound, but I rate him slightly higher than Beevil because of that accomplishment. Yeah, yeah, I, I can I can see that. But I also like to say that I think Jamal is much better than Jamel. Um, I thought if uh, I really do think Jamel has a lot of flaws. Um, Jamal has some too. Like people are like a lot of people were saying about the Derevinchenko fight. Like he destroyed Derevinchenko, and I'm like, I mean, Derevinchenko didn't win that fight, but he won at least at, at least three rounds. You can't say he didn't win at least three rounds. Like I had it like a seven to five for Charlo, so you can't say that was a complete domination. Like Charlo clearly, uh, clearly has some flaws. Well, I mean, Derevinchenko is a great fighter, you know, so you can't say that, but. uh I want to get your opinion on like uh, who you think the better Charlo brother is. You know, I think that's still being decided, man. Um, I think that when you look at the eye test, I agree with you. Jamal looks like the better fighter, and that's what most people think. Uh, I think that's an opinion shared by most people in, in the industry, actually. If you talk to most like trainers and promoters like off the record, they'll say, yo, man, that, that Jamal kid, he's going to be the one. But I still say in terms of, uh, accomplishments right now and the better overall opposition, I, I think Jamal's beat the best fighter. Beating Derevyanchenko trumps any fighters that Jamal's beat, but overall, the overall quality of opposition, you could argue for Jamal is slightly better and he's unified three legitimate world titles. The title that uh, Jamal won at 160 was bullshit, right? So, you know, yeah, yeah. it's just... Right now, in terms of accomplishments, Jamel rates higher. In terms of eye test and potential, maybe Jamal rates higher. But I, I got to jump off, man, because uh, Ray's going to be calling in here in a minute. But um, 
if you want, call back later, dude, because I know I know you were super excited about this card, and I know you got a lot of opinions about, especially the Derevianchenko bout. Yeah, man, I'll uh, I'll talk to you later. Get to it. Have fun with Ray. All right, brother. All right, there he goes, Jack. Jack Alter, guys. Jack has a YouTube channel too. Uh, make sure you check that out. Uh, I think he's got like over 5,000 subs right now. He's growing his his channel pretty quickly. So, And he does some film study stuff and everything over there. So check him out, man. Um, and, and I'm not going to be able to do the entire review before Ray gets on, but we'll talk a little bit about the Showtime card with Ray. But um, let me talk real quickly, okay, before uh, we get Ray on. Uh, Friday, September 25th, last Friday, Tony Yoka with a statement win, a KO1 win over Johan Duapas in Paris. Um, this was a statement. I mean, I mean, he he drilled him in one round and got him out of there in one round. So statement making performance. But again, like everything else, we can't get too excited. Is Tony Yoka in the top ten right now or anything? No, he's nowhere close to that. Do I still rate Yoka or do I do I now move Yoka above? Uh, Daniel Dubois in terms of you know my top heavyweight prospects. No, Dubois is still the top heavyweight prospect in the world. But this was a statement win for Tony Yoko. It proves to 8-0, and he did what he was supposed to do. But just to kind of keep things in perspective, you know, I want to talk about this. This is important to remember. Styles make fights, and timing is everything. But Duapas was KO'd by Deontay Wilder in 11 rounds in 2015. He was KO'd by Alexander Povetkin in six rounds in 2016. He fought Jarrell Big Baby Miller and went the distance in 2018. And here in 2020, he gets blasted out in one round by Tony Yoka. So am I trying to suggest that Yoka is better than Wilder, Povetkin, or even Miller? No. What I'm trying to suggest, though, is that it looks like he's got some power. It looks like he's got some power to him. And it looks like he is developing, and we need to keep an eye on him. Okay, but this is a one-off. It's a one-round knockout. It's exciting. I get it. But let's just see what happens next. And let's see if he can build upon this. Okay. Uh, let's see. What else? Um, also last weekend, Julio Cesar Chavez Jr. lost a fight in Mexico. What the hell has happened with that kid? I, I, I just don't know. And Sergei Bohachuk won. Uh, he fought in Mexico as well. So he got a W while Chavez Jr. lost. Saturday, September 26th, ESPN Plus picked up this card from London. Uh, Josh Taylor, who, of course, is now with top rank. This was his top rank debut. He improved to 17-0 with a KO1 win over Apadon Konsong. Uh, it was a mandatory, uh, I think, for the IBF because Taylor has WBA and IBF junior welterweight titles. Uh, mandatory out of Thailand. And KO1, over in a hurry, body shot. And this wasn't the first kind of weird-looking KO of Saturday, which we'll talk about that a little bit later. It was a left hook to the body. And, you know, a lot of people I saw were shitting on Taylor for the mismatch because it looked like this guy, Kansong, should not have been in the ring with him. Why are you mad at Taylor? Why are you mad at Top Rank? Why are you mad at ESPN? They didn't assign this mandatory. And why the hell should they tell the, I think, again, I believe it was the IBF. Correct me if I'm wrong, guys, and it was the WBA, but I believe it was the IBF. Why would they dump their title when they can fight this guy over in London where it will do decent numbers 
And they didn't put this on regular ESPN. They put it on ESPN Plus. They put it on the app, which is where that type of matchup belongs here in the States. But I, I just I don't understand why people were mad at Taylor or top rank for taking this fight. I saw some reaction on Twitter. And, you know, boxing Twitter is insane. We know this. But it was just mandatory. And he was doing what he was supposed to do. Be mad at the IBF. Shit on the sanctioning organization on that one. Okay? That's 100% on them. All he did was beat his mandatory. So now he, Taylor, can go toward that fight with Ramirez. Now, unfortunately, I think Ramirez has a mandatory to take care of. So hopefully Top Rank can get that scheduled soon so that these two, Ramirez and Taylor, can fight next spring. Those two need to fight by like April or May at the latest. They don't need to marinate that shit to late next year or later than that. We need consolidation in the junior welterweight division, and Taylor got one step closer to that. And again, he's just, for me, this was, I'll go on the other end of the spectrum here. Because there were people shitting on him and pissed off about this mismatch. Then on the other side, there were people saying, oh, this is why he's pound for pound. This is why he's a top fighter. That all may be true. We don't know. But, dude, I got to see him put it together one more time in a fight against Ramirez and clean out the division. Then he's pound for pound. And if Ramirez wins that fight against Taylor, then he's pound for pound. That's just, look, for me, getting to that pound for pound list it's a big accomplishment, and you can't do it off one fight. It has to be a series of fights. Sometimes your amateur career plays a part in it. Sometimes, like guys like Guillermo Rigondeaux and Vasily Lomachenko, they were on the pound-for-pound pound list very early in their careers. But a big part of that is because they had hundreds of amateur wins, and they had two, not one, but two gold medals. In the amateurs, particularly if you're going into global competition, you have to fight the best. So for them to do that and accomplish what they did before even going pro, that was a big reason why they got rated pound for pound so quickly in their careers. So, yeah, anyway. Also, I talked about this fight a little bit earlier on. World Boxing Super Series Cruiserweight Finale on the zone from Munich, Germany. Marius Bredis approves the 27-1 with a majority decision win over Cuban Uniel Dorticos. This should not have been... A majority decision. This should have been a unanimous decision. For some reason, German judge George Milke, I'm probably pronouncing that wrong, scored at 114-114 a draw, which is a terrible score. And I'm telling you guys, because it's coming. It's coming. There have been three fights in recent memory, I want to say in the last month, where there has been a shitty scorecard. And unfortunately, fortunately, it hasn't affected the fight. The right man still won because the other two judges scored the fight correctly. But I can't remember. I think Lou Barrett had one. I can't remember who else it was, but it was a week or two ago. And then this one. We've seen three of these recently where these just three terrible scorecards where these guys had no idea what the hell they were watching. Maybe it was Glenn Feldman recently had the other one. Correct me if I'm wrong. But it's going to happen where... Because I'm the only one bitching about it. I feel like no one else is bitching about it. Everyone's like, oh, calm down, Mike. The right man won. Calm down. The right guy won. Well, it's going to happen in the next couple months, or maybe it'll be next year. I don't know. Where there's going to be two of these scorecards on the same fight, and someone's going to get ripped off really bad. And then everyone's going to bitch. 
And I'm going to be that guy sitting in the back of the room with my arms crossed like, where were you motherfuckers last year when we saw this bad scorecard, that bad scorecard, and I bitched about it and you all called me crazy and told me to shut up and sit down because the right man won. A bad scorecard is a bad scorecard and deserves criticism. All right. This was a bad scorecard. Uh, uh, Bradis clearly won this fight. Eight rounds, maybe nine rounds. I scored it 117-111 with the other two judges. So for one judge to have this a draw just shows he's incompetent. Anyway, much like I talked about Jermel Charlo a minute ago, Marius Bredis is the best cruiserweight in the world. Now, a big part of that is because Oleksandr Usyk is now a heavyweight. If he was still at cruiserweight, I don't think Bredis would be the best cruiserweight in the world. And you can make an argument. I think he had a fight against Noel uh, Grever. I don't know how to pronounce the name. A year or two ago where many people feel that was a ripoff and a robbery. I get it. But his overall body of work, he is clearly the best cruiserweight in the world right now. This is number one versus number two. He's now the ring champion, the lineal champion. And so, you know, his resume from 2017 to 2020, yeah, he lost to Usyk. Maybe he lost to the German. Many people felt he did. I sure felt he did watching it that night. And his win over Glovaki was messy and ugly. I'm just talking just overall quality of opposition. Win some, lose some, but just who he's fought. Marius Bredis has had a hell of a run, man. He's fought some top names in his division. And I do think the cruiserweight division is a little underrated. So uh, he deserves some props. He deserves some credit. But let's jump over here to the guest hotline and bring on, I believe this is our guest. Let me double check over here. Is this Mr. Ray Flores? What's up, Mike? How are you, my man? Doing well, man. Thank you so much for being on the show, Ray. How are you doing, man? Are you feeling jet lag or what? Yeah, you know what? A little bit of, uh, you know, I'm still recovering from the weekend. Oh, what a fantastic night of boxing. I mean, it was a fun week being in two different bubbles in L.A. and in Connecticut as well. You know, back in the L.A. bubble tomorrow evening for PBC on FS1 on Saturday. But you know what, man? I'm just so glad that boxing is back and, you know, fighters are competing and showcasing their talent. Hell yeah, brother. And I want to talk to you about your experience. I'd love for you to walk through it. But before we do that, just for uh, for anyone on the show that's listening right now that doesn't know your background, can you just talk a little bit about, you know, uh, Columbia College Radio and then you worked at ESPN Chicago, just a little bit about your background, how you got to where you are now? Well, I've been really fortunate, Mike. I owe a lot to so many people that I've worked with and you know, I, I started off covering MMA when back when I was 17 years old in high school, doing public access TV in northwest Indiana, following around, around a guy by the name of Miguel Torres, who fought locally and then became the WEC Bantamweight champion in the world. And the WEC became folded into the UFC when it comes to the lighter weight classes, 135, 45, and 55. So I followed him around, was calling his fights for public access TV, uh, showing that a week later after he would fight, went to Columbia College, did an MMA boxing radio show. That's where I interviewed Kevin Ioli for the very first time. Mm. That was when Kevin was actually at the Las Vegas Review Journal. Learned a lot doing that, covered a lot of boxing events in Chicago. Bernie Barmazal, esteemed publicist, he was the one who signed off on my credentials on covering a lot of those events with ACOM Productions, worked for his boxing as a ring announcer when I was 21, 22 years of age, 
transitioned to ESPN radio a couple years after college and then really got going when it comes to ring announcing for, for Golden Boy. I was a fill-in for them, for, for Joe Martinez on their Silver Book Sarah series back in late 2011, 2012, 13, 14. Because of that relationship, I was doing ring announcing undercards on big Mayweather cards. Uh, Mayweather Canelo was my first one, and then Jimmy Lennon would obviously take over. From there, connected with Artie Palulo, Banner Promotions, a guy who is you know, so great to me, him, Matt Rowland, Mark Abrams, really gave me a wonderful opportunity. It's because of Artie that I did ESPN Friday Night Vice for the first time for about three years. He's the reason why I made my HBO debut. And then December of 14, connected with TGB Promotions and Tom Brown and did their first event that was Night of Champions at Pachanga and then did Showbox for them a week later. And then in June of 2015, they brought me on to start hosting press conferences for PBC. And then shortly thereafter, started ring announcing the PBC and ESPN events, NBCSN, and, you know, the rest after that has pretty much been history. And I've been very fortunate and blessed to be in the position that I'm in. Dude, you, I mean, all those names you just ran off. I mean, some of these guys, uh, Bernie Bermasel really gave me, um, a leg up and a chance early on when I was getting started. You mentioned Mark Abrams, Tom Brown's awesome. Um, hits boxing, because uh, they're in Chicago. Uh, just You've worked with everybody, and um, you've done that in such a quick time. And I think you really represent kind of the new form of media because you don't just do one thing. I feel like you go back 50 years, they were announcers, they were writers, they were commentators, and they kind of stayed in their lane. But you do a little bit of everything. You do ring announcements, you do hosting, interviews, you call the the blow by blow. Is there one particular thing that you like better than the rest, or do you like all of it? I like them all in their own way, but Mike, without a doubt, it's it's hands down not even close is play by play. Yeah, because there is nothing better than calling a fight and, and being able to tell the fighter's story. I am a romantic when it comes to boxing because to me. It is the truest form of competition. I love these fighters' stories. That's why I'm so big on, on being positive in, within the sport because every single time the fighter steps inside the ring, they risk their lives. So that's why I'm so very much protective of the sport. There's so many great, unique stories, and that's why I, I really focus in on trying to make sure that we tell those stories. And mm-hmm. to me, I grew up loving I grew up during the time, I'm 34 now, where Jim Lampley, who I think is the greatest play-by-play man of all time in boxing, but then also watching Steve Albert as well. Those are two masters that I grew up watching, studying, admiring. And I want to bring that old-school flavor back to doing commentary when it comes to the year 2020 because those guys set the bar so high. And there will only be one Michael Jordan. And to me, there will only be one Jim Lampley. And there will never be anybody better than him, hands down. But if we can carry on that legacy, that passion, that intensity that he brought to the table every single time, that's what I try to do when it comes to when I call fights whenever I'm on the air. And you you do. I love your passion. I, I can't remember what event it was, but there was an event in L.A. It was a media presser for PBC. And this probably goes back to 2015, 2016. And that's where I first met you. And I... I could just feel your passion then. And I'm a passionate guy too. So I was like, I was just in the back of my mind, I was like, I like this dude. You also have 
<laughs> probably the best hair game in the business. Now we got to talk about the hair for a second. How long does it take you to get it so perfectly coiffed the way that you do? You what is your what? process? The key is, is when I get my hair cut, I, I get them to put the part in. So I make them with, with the razor or yeah. you know, they put in the part. So that way it's, it's not that difficult for me to be able to wake up in the morning and put, if I, as long as I have proper hair, hair gel and a comb to be able to make sure that it's correct and stuff. So, you know, wash my hair every other day. That way it doesn't lose too much of, you know, the oils and everything else. But it's honestly in the haircut, making sure that they etch in the part and it's correct. And, uh, you know, I get it every, you know, four to six weeks. So that's the uh, the key to success when it comes to the hair. And <laughs> you're very kind on that. Dude, I started doing the same thing uh, a couple of months ago where my barber, she'll, she'll kind of shave it. You know, she'll take a literal blade, a metal blade, and kind of cut that part. And it makes it a lot easier because I'm terrible at combing my hair and styling it. But it grows back in in like three days. That's the only problem. You know what I'm saying? Like, it grows right back. I'm like, shit. But, uh, okay, back to boxing. I know. I need to focus here. Um, Okay, so we talked about, you know, you mentioned really quickly about showing love for the fighters. And I'm I'm so with you. I mean, there's a lot of divisiveness in this sport. And I admit, I'm trying to get better about uh, complaining or being divisive myself. I've checked myself on that recently. I'm trying to do a better job of that on Twitter myself. But I've noticed that, um, I saw you tweet about this. There are some people that either currently work in boxing or did for a very long time that have been shitting on it a lot lately and slobbing all over UFC. And there's nothing wrong with being a fan of UFC and boxing. There's plenty of room for both sports. And as far as I'm concerned, they're completely different. It's like comparing basketball and baseball. There's not much of a comparison. But one particular guy, Teddy Atlas, really pissed you off. So I'm just yeah. – uh, have you talked to Teddy at all? I'm just curious. I mean, I, I worked with Teddy. I worked with Teddy in the past, and, and the thing is is that that's why it kind of catches me off guard. Like, I understand when he gets upset about the judges and stuff. I'm, I'm on board with that when, when egregious decisions happen. I, I'm totally on board with that because these fighters risk everything, right? But – he was around and he was commentating for such a long time. And he would be like, and I think I mentioned this on social media, it'd be like covering the NFL for 30 years. Then mm-hmm. you're not on air with the NFL. Two years later, you're saying, oh, you know what, the NFL sucks. Right. You know, don't watch the NFL no more. Watch baseball instead. Don't ever turn your attention to the NFL. It's like, what? Like, you made a wonderful living off of the NFL or off of boxing, and now you're turning your back on it? And, and making it seem like the UFC is all high and mighty and, and the holy grail and stuff like that. It's like, look, there are problems in every major sport all yes. over the world. So let's not say that one is doing everything correctly because that's the furthest thing from the truth. And when you start dumping on the fighters and on the sport that you made a really good living off of and you're not around it or as prominent – I'm like, get out of here with that nonsense. Get off your high horse. Stop being old man and pissed off because you know what? You're pissing me off because right. the younger fighters, instead of us focusing on the younger fighters, 
the younger talent, the younger champions, we're focusing on the stupidity that came out of your mouth. Because people actually listen to you because you <laughs> built that reputation. And look, I, I'm hoping by the time my career is over, Mike, that I have a quarter of the reputation of what Teddy Ellis has been able to accomplish in right. this business. He's a legend. Make right. no mistake about it. But when you get old and cranky and pissed off and start dumping on the sport that I love and around the fighters that I see bleeding, sweating, and putting their lives on the line, yeah, I'm going to defend it because that's my prerogative. I'm with you, man. I'm with you 100%. And, and for the record, everyone watching and listening, Ray is one of the nicest guys in boxing. So if Teddy could piss Ray off, then he did bad because it's hard <laughs> to piss Ray off. But the thing is, what, what it aggravates me, and for the record, it's not just Teddy. There are people right now working in boxing that I routinely see tweeting out UFC, basically saying UFC is better, boxing sucks. And if you like UFC better, that's that's fine. But to, as you said, Ray, to act like it's one-sided and UFC doesn't have issues and boxing is all bad, that's not correct. And Teddy, of all people, having worked in the boxing industry for decades, understanding the differences, the nuances between boxing and UFC, how much more difficult it is to make the big fights, the big events in boxing, when you're dealing with a truly global sport that has so much more regulation, uh, that's really irresponsible, in my opinion. Is that what really frustrates you? Because he should know better, shouldn't he? Yeah, it's like, look, everything that's under one roof when it comes to the high, high end of MMA, they get to dictate everything, and that's fine. More power to them. God bless them for being able to do that. The fighters are willing to take what, what they're offering, and they're making a living. Who am I to judge? Look, I want everyone to do well, Mike, not just MMA, not just one promotion boxing. I want every major combat sports right. promotion to do well. Why do we have to pick and choose? Why is MMA coming after boxing? Why do boxing fans have to get defensive about our sport? Or why do we have to attack MMA for? It's like enough of this nonsense. The more fighting on TV, the better. When glory kickboxing is on and I'm off on tonight, I'm going to watch that too because I love the fight game. I support everybody on any major platform, hands down. And it's like, listen, in boxing, it's a little bit harder to make the bigger fights because there are more people involved. But I do believe, Mike, that what we're seeing, especially with Wilder Fury number two, that we're going to get closer to making more cross-promotional fights. I'm very, yeah. very optimistic once we get fans back in the arenas. You're so right. And, you know, I'm an opportunist or opportunist. I'm a, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, the opposite of pessimist. Why can't I think of the word right now? Uh, dang it. I, I, I'm positive. I can't think of the word right now, but I, an optimist. That's the word. Jesus. Why couldn't I think of that word? I'm an optimist like you. And I'm, I do overall feel positive about where the sport's trending. But you know, one thing I ask a lot of people, where do you, where do you sit right now in terms of where you see the boxing landscape in America? What are your concerns? What do you think we need to do better? What are we doing good? Where do you sit on all that? I, I think what we're doing good on is I'm starting to really see, Mike, a lot of hungry young champions that want to fight each other. Look, it's without a doubt, with Errol Spence having, coming off of a, a car accident last year, they offered him a tuna fight. He said, I don't want a tuna fight. Give me my mandatory. Yeah. Mandatory being Danny Garcia, 11-month layoff. He said, no problem. So that's the whole thing. 
And I love the fact that younger champions want to fight each other, want to test each other. What I think we need to do a better job in is we need to understand that we, we have to be able to cater more towards the younger audience. The hardcore fight fan fan base will be there, but I think we need to get a little bit quicker when it comes to getting to fights uh, from, a, from a TV standpoint. Yeah. I think we need to really start to have a, a good indication and research in how to grab the younger fans. The younger fans are on their phones. They're big on social media. The fighters do a great job of it, but from a media standpoint, from a promotional standpoint across the board, I think we need to be able to go over and, and cater to some younger fans. I'm not saying put YouTubers in the main event. I mean, that's another topic for another day, but <laughs> you know, let's try to really get these younger guys and give them more of a platform, and I think we all need to come together and focus on a way to try to get younger fans involved in boxing, because in my opinion, combat sports are the greatest sports on the planet. I completely agree. Uh, you, you brought up something, though. You hit on something. Getting to fights quicker on TV. So you were there uh, calling the international broadcast for the Charlo doubleheader. And I tweeted about this. Yeah. And it, it wasn't me trying to be overly critical, but it's something that I see. And, and I feel it's my job to critique and to sometimes question things. And it didn't make sense to me why in the middle of that pay-per-view show, you had, I think it was like a 45-minute intermission on the Showtime pay-per-view broadcast with a with a podcast. And the guys in the podcast did a good job. I have nothing against them and anything they said or how they did yeah. it. But just the timing of it seemed to drain all the energy because the start of that card, the first few fights were great. They really were great. Yeah. And the energy just got sucked out of the, the broadcast after that intermission, man. Uh, how did that feel there at the venue? Well, I was called to fight for the international, and what we did was we went ahead and we took a little bit of a break, and we showed Jermel Charlo's win over Jorge Cota. I saw That's Steven right. Espinosa, who I think does a very solid job, an excellent job, and he said that you know the crew needed a little bit of a break and stuff like that. So in my opinion, it's like, hey, who? I'm not the one running you know this multi-billion dollar, billion dollar network, so who am I to judge? I just, you know, from, from an outsider's perspective, if we could – you know, instead of it being, you know, 40 minutes, 30 minutes, it could have been 15 or 20 minutes. But again, I, that's above my pay grade, and, and I don't make those decisions. I think everyone worked very hard that night. But, you know, if it could have been half instead of just, uh, you know, 30 yeah. to 40 minutes, I think that would have been better and more advantageous enough for everyone to kind of clear the cobwebs. But again, I don't know the legalities behind this, and I don't know. I mean, I don't know the unions or all that other stuff. So, I mean, I really can't comment any further than that. So there's always a method to, you know, the madness and stuff. But selfishly, I wish it would have been 15 to 20 minutes. I hear you, man. And I know there are decisions made above the pay grade. And like you said, it could have had something to do with unions. It could have had something to do with international uh, network timing because there was foreign TV in there and everything else. And maybe we just don't know why they did it. I just think they could have communicated better, maybe, if there was a, if there was some sort of yeah, logical reason for let it. People know, let, let the fans know, like, hey, you know, right. this is why we're doing it. Right. You know, I, I totally understand. They thought that that little break with, with the two guys, with Luke and, and Brian, was enough and stuff. But I saw some fans that uh, weren't necessarily happy. But if they would have said, hey, you know, this is why we're doing it and stuff, maybe that would have been, you know, suffice and everything else. And that, that's all it is. It's communication. I think fans yes. want to be – you know, you want to understand it and grab things a little bit more. And you know what? The fans deserve it. So hopefully if, if it's ever a next time, uh, that certainly happens when it comes to better communication. 
Yeah, because I like the idea of the card. I liked. Uh, I mean, it was a stacked card. I, I think it's top to bottom, probably the best card PBCs put together. At least one of their top cards, and uh, it was a great value for seventy five dollars for the pay per view. I know some people didn't like that it was pay per view, but all things considered, without a live gate revenue and everything else, I thought it was. I thought Showtime did a very good job. I just think you know we we're talking about things the boxing business could do better especially trying to appeal to younger fans in the age of social media where communication is everything. That's the sort of thing where it's like, hey, just communicate. Let people know, hey, here's what we're doing and here's why we're doing it. And then people could tune out for 45 minutes if they want and come back. Hey, yeah, that's all it is, Mike. You know, like, hey, you know what, guys? If you want to stick around and watch this intermission, cool. If not, hey, we're going to come back in about 35 minutes. And we'll get rolling again. So, you know, don't miss, you know, these next three fights and everything. But, yeah, as you mentioned, Mike, you know, it's, it's hard times not being able to have a live game. You know what? Yeah. I miss all of you guys. I miss the media. I miss the fans. I mean, it, there, there's a lot missing from, from the sport, but we're doing the best that we can right now. Yeah, these are unprecedented times. And, you know, some fans on social media are just going to complain no matter what. But I think all things considered, that Charlo doubleheader pay-per-view is pretty damn good a pretty damn good value for what it was and uh most of the fights you know several of the fights i should say lived up to the hype before i let you go man i've kept you on for a minute but um i'd like to if you could just kind of put people in your world for like last week if you could just describe what you did because i think people just um underappreciate how much travel is involved all the logistics of what you have to go through (laughs) to call the events, especially in the world of COVID. So if you could just quickly break down your insane week last week. Yeah, so I called the the Lubin Gachet fight from a studio uh, out in Wisconsin. So I moved back to Chicago about, you know, three to four weeks ago. So I'm back here in the Midwest. I was in L.A. for a couple of years, moved back here to Chicago. So I called a, stu- a fight from a studio on Saturday. I was not in Connecticut. Then Sunday night, I um I went I jumped on a plane through Chicago got to LA was in the PBC LA bubble on Sunday did fighter meetings for PBC on FS1 our Wednesday show on Monday morning then at noon I got my COVID test done on Monday had that done I was totally quarantined had the food delivered to my room everything else you know keep kept doing prep you know we knocked out those Zoom fighter meetings did a couple interviews previewing. The, the Charlo pay-per-view and stuff. And then Tuesday, uh, you know, obviously wake up, work out in my room, you know, have food delivered to my room. And then, you know, I did the weigh-in. I got cleared to be able to move around. You know, I was negative on COVID, knock on wood, and then hosted the weigh-in. Then, you know, came back to my room, kept prepping, et cetera, et cetera, did what I had to do for Tuesday night. Wednesday's the fight. So, you know, we go to rehearsals around 4 or 5 o'clock. We get here at 7. We do the fight from like 7 to about 9.30. There was one off-TV fight that happened with Victor Slavinsky getting the victory. I ring announced that fight. You know, go back to the room. I think my flight was at like 7.15. By the time I relax and calm down, I always try to watch a few fights that I did if it's up on YouTube so I can review and critique and find out ways that I can get better. Knock out about 2, up around 4.30, finish packing my stuff out the door at 5, at the airport about 5.30. On the plane at 7, connect through Charlotte, Charlotte to Connecticut, landed in Connecticut around 6.30, another hour drive. You know, they, they had a car to pick me up, so 
6.30, got to the Mohegan Sun around 8 o'clock, got some dinner Thursday night, woke up early 7 a.m., 7.30 COVID test, on lockdown the entire day, you know, as COVID results are coming in, prepping more for the pay-per-view, et cetera, et cetera, got cleared from COVID, uh, negative on COVID, was able to go get dinner around 7.30, 8 o'clock, more interviews throughout the day, Saturday, same deal, more interviews, prep, head down to the building or the truck around 5 o'clock. We did a virtual cocktail party with fighters and fans around 6, 50 or at 7, 7, about 1.30. That's when the pay-per-view ended at 1.30, grabbed dinner at 2, and then <laughs> relaxed, maybe slept for about an hour, packed in the car at 5, at the airport by 6, flight at 7.30, back in Chicago by 9.30, Came home, relaxed, watched the Bears come from behind and beat the Atlanta Falcons. I know you're down there in Atlanta, <laughs> that Atlanta area stuff. And I was so pumped up after that win, I couldn't even take a nap. So watch Sunday Night Football and then crashed. And then away I go tomorrow back to L.A. So that was my week in a nutshell. Damn. So all you out there that think it's a glamorous gig, it looks glamorous. But there's a lot behind the scenes. And I, I, Ray, I mean, obviously, I'm not at your level. I don't, I don't do the commentary. But just uh, traveling to events, especially when I was in L.A. And you go up to Vegas and sometimes they'd have pressers in L.A. Then you'd have to be up in Vegas for weigh-ins and stuff. It's a hectic freaking week, man. And, uh, but, you know, if you're passionate about the sport and you love it, you don't mind any of it, right? Mike, it's the greatest job in the world. And yeah. I work with some of the greatest people because, you know, PBC and TGB Promotions, they always take care of us. They look after us. They make sure we have what we need. I'm a simple guy. I don't need anything crazy. They make sure we need to get from point A to point B. The one thing is I don't really like doing the whole rental car thing and stuff. So I'll either Uber or they have a car pick me up and everything else to take me where I need to get to because, you know, lack of sleep and stuff like that. So yeah. I'm very fortunate, man. I have the greatest job in the world. I love what I do. I want to keep doing it for the rest of my life. The traveling part, I mean, it could be a little redundant. But, you know, at the end of the day, I'm able to travel. I'm able to see great fighters. I'm able to do what I love to do. And honestly, the fight fans entrust me with the responsibility to do this. The networks do as well, along with promoters. So I take that responsibility so much to heart that I have to be on my A game. I don't care if I'm sick. Or, I mean, not sick, but like, you know, not COVID sick, but you know what I'm saying. Right, I know what you're saying. Whatever, if I'm tired or whatever the case may be, you have to be on your A game every single time because the sport and the fans demanding, it's what I demand out of myself. So every single time, I try to get better and better and better because the sport demands it and the legends like the Jim Lampley's, the Steve Alberts of the world, Bernardo Osuna, who's been great to me from ESPN, opening yeah. up doors for me. Uh, they have paved the way, and it's up to us, the younger generations, to take what they've done and even further their legacies. Man, you got me all pumped up and shit. I need to go work out now, dude. Man, this is why I love talking <laughs> to you, man. You always get me all hyped up. I remember in uh, in Dallas, after Spence and Garcia fought, we caught up backstage and talked for like 30 minutes. And um, it, it was the same feeling. Right at the end, of it, I was like, yeah, I was just ready to do some push-ups or something. But uh, – Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Moment, man. Those are special moments, brother. You know. Yeah. No, you're right, man. And we were so fortunate to be around it and to be there live. You know, uh, ringside. I mean, we're right there by the ring covering this stuff. And sometimes I don't believe it. And getting paid to do it. But man, um, thank you so much for being on the show. We'll definitely have you back on in the future, brother. I know that you got a crazy week ahead of you after 
a crazy week. So I'll let you go. But um, thanks again for being on the show, Ray. It was awesome. Mike, thank you so much for the invitation. Really appreciate it to all your listeners and viewers. Thank you guys so much for supporting the sport of boxing. Keep supporting it. Keep signing in. It's only going to get better. And I hope you all can turn into PBC on FS1 this Saturday, 8 Eastern, 5 Pacific time. All right. Have a good one, Ray. Later, brother. All right, man. There he goes, everybody. Ray Flores, one of the best in the business, one of the coolest guys in the business. Um, just a uh, super cool dude. Anytime I've been around him and we've chatted, I just always walk away feeling energetic and pumped up and positive. And that's one of the true gifts that he has. It's something that I'm trying to get better with myself. Uh, you know, so it, he's just, uh, that, that man is going to be around in this business for a long, long time. Your grandchildren will be watching Ray Flores on a broadcast decades from now. Mark my words on that. Speaking of Mark, super chat pledge from Mark from Unrivaled Boxing Talk and News. Great channel. Make sure you check it out. Thank you so much, Mark. He says, Ray, hard choice, Casabera or Inoue, who you got? Damn, I'm sorry I missed your super chat there. I promise you I'll, uh, I'll talk to Ray later tonight. I'll follow up with him. I'll ask him for you, brother. I'll ask him for you. But uh, I would guess he's going to go with Casimiro. Um, that's just my hunch on that one. He's going to take Casimiro. Okay. Awesome interview, man. And now, by the way, if you guys want to get on the phones and talk about the fights last weekend, because I know there's a lot of opinions out there, get on the phone lines now. Um, for those of you who are listening and not watching the video, let me give you the numbers. 213-267-7787 in the U.S. of A. And in the UK, it's 02081-036051. So, I had reviewed everything up until the Showtime show. So, let's talk about the good, the bad, the ugly, the whole thing. And um, I look, as I mentioned with Ray, overall, this was a great show. This was a great card. I thought they did a very good job. And all things considered, this being $75 pay-per-view... I saw so many fans bitching. If it were my choice, would I would you know would I rather see it on regular Fox? Of course, but so many fans were bitching over the summer. Man, look at what UFC is doing. Yeah, it's on it's on pay per view, but that's because the best are fighting the best. Well, that's what you got last Saturday, and yet people were still bitching. So I thought, all things considered, it was a good show. However, the show was about seven hours long. It was over six hours long. That is just too much boxing. Now, if you're buying a ticket and you're going to the fights, six hours isn't too much boxing. But on a TV broadcast, I think two, three hours max. And then you're kind of, it's, it's just overkill. So I think what they could have done a little differently here is maybe put a couple of these fights on quote unquote free TV. Maybe started on Fox or even FS1 or YouTube. Put it on their freak, put it on Showtime's YouTube. If Showtime didn't want to put it on their regular air, if they had something else going on, number one, I, I don't think that's even a, a problem because Showtime has what, 8,000 different networks, right? They have Showtime, Showtime Extreme, Showtime 2. There's a million of them. So put the first three, four fights on you know, regular Showtime, then jump over to the pay per view. Don't do the intermission the way they did that. If you're going to do the intermission, that should have been on their YouTube channel or on Fox or FS1. Again, whatever it is, leading into the pay-per-view broadcast. So I thought that was a mistake. But 
unprecedented times. They're trying something different. I give Tom Brown, TGB Promotions, a lot of credit. I thought overall they did a very good job. It was just a little too much. And again, I'm, nit I'm nitpicking here. You know, there's always going to be something I'm criticizing because I'm going to talk about what was good, what was bad. And so this was just some of the negative stuff, okay? Uh, let me jump over to the phones real quick. We got a call here from, uh, let me see what area code. 353, you're on TNC, go. Hey, Mike, how are you? Good, how are you? I'm good, it's Mark Marner. Um, oh, is it Mark? What's up, man? Well, yeah, I'm all good, I'm all good. And just on the time thing, right? Because I'm in a different time zone. So we paid for this um, via Fight TV. That's how we were able to watch this in Europe because no networks picked it up. So it was on Fight TV. It was only uh, 15, 15. But the problem is the card started at 12 and it finished at 6.45. Yeah. And it, it would have, they could have shaved an hour and a half off of that or an hour even. And it would have been so much better because like, by the time the card finishes, it's coming close to seven. And for people who, because it was a big card, it was a big event. People were talking about it, not just in America, but a lot of people were talking about it, like in the UK and stuff. And I can only imagine for people in Central Europe, like France, etc., like it would have been close to eight a.m. Even people who might have been watching from Italy, it would have been nine a.m. You know, yeah. And um, by the time the card ended, um, I, I would have preferred to see either like two of the fights on at an earlier time, like. 10 p.m. for us, which would have been about 5 p.m. Eastern Standard. I don't know. It would have been a little bit better if the card hadn't started earlier. But having said that, the card was exceptional. I, I agree. I don't know. What's your thoughts on I, I agree with you, man. And, and, you know, of course, people are going to bitch and complain because that's what people do, particularly on social media. But when you consider all of the logistics involved in this card, and everything that they had to put together, I think there were, I think all four sanctioning organizations were involved in this card. That's complicated. You're dealing with fighters from several different countries. Um, you're unifying titles. Two top five fighters at 160, two top five fighters at 154. And you're getting all that for $75. I thought it was a really good value. And for everyone that's been bitching, all summer long about, you know, some of the matchmaking and, the, and the, the club shows that Top Rank had put on over the summer. Well, here was your chance to put your money where your mouth was. And I just hope that people did. I hope people tuned in, man. I, I did too, because it was actually, I'll be honest, the Rebianchenko-Jamal fight was actually an extremely enjoyable fight to watch. Yes. Very, very good fight. And even though people are kind of, giving crap to Roman because he should have done better against Poyano on the rose. That fight was, it was brutal. It yes. was a brutal fight to watch. It was fantastic. And haven't re-watched re and seen everything to do with Jermel and Jason Rosario. The fight was very good. I was, the ending was controversial at first glance to me, right? At first glance. Right. And then after seeing all the other stuff in the corner, I'm sure you've seen in the corner Jason Rosario practically nearly passing out. Yes. Um, his trainers need to be questioned on that. He should have been pulled out after that seventh round. Um, I completely agree. That's what I think. Um, I completely agree. On that because, okay. Okay. And um, what's your thoughts on it? the corner thing, the situation with Rosario? I was gonna. I was gonna talk about that. Um, it, it's. <laughs> 
No one else is talking about this in the media. Nobody has talked to Rosario's people, his corner that I know of, and no one's really called it out. That's that's a shame. I saw Stephen Breadman Edwards did, which, you know, I, I, he's one of my favorite guys because he always gives his truth. Whether you agree or not doesn't really matter. He calls it the way he sees it. I wish, and he's not even really a media member, although he does post sometimes uh, on some sites. But um, he's the only guy I saw with a platform really, really talk about it. And I think that, for you know, you can understand why the commentary crew didn't catch on it, you know, especially given the bubble situation and all that, why they didn't see it live. But uh, I'm surprised none of the podcasts or anything talked about that. I've listened to a few of the podcasts this week and nobody caught it. Everyone was saying, I saw people on Twitter saying Rosario took a dive. And um, we've never seen someone KO'd off a jab. People got short memories. Miguel Cotto KO'd Alfonso Gomez off a jab. Um, Last year, Kovalev against Anthony Yard. It happens. But it wasn't the jab. That was just the last little, you know, hit with the hammer that busted the granite. Uh, Rosario was was out. I I think, I don't know if you remember, I think it was the first round. There was like a, a hook or something that hit him on the top of the head. An equilibrium shot. I just don't yeah, think he a, ever fully it was, recovered. It was a grazing hook. Yeah, he never fully recovered from that shot. That. He looked recovered in round two, three, and four because he was beating them up. But... Well, okay, I'll give you that. He fought back because he was – but I, I, neurologically, there was something going on, dude. But also, people talked about him convulsing when he got hit with that body shot. It just it, – it lets me know that they've never sparred before because I can tell you – I've, you know, I've been exhaling. Let's, let's say you move into a jab while you're exhaling, you're breathing through the diaphragm and you're not tensed and it hits you just right. A jab to the gut can hurt. I've been hit with some jabs uh, to, to the gut that really knocked the wind out of me. And that's what, it, that's what it did to him. And he was already softened up. He was, he just had the wind knocked out of him. That's all it was to me. My, the, right, so I'll I'll come out with and straight up say I thought when I first watched it, he may have died to get out of there, not to fix the fight, but get out. Right, that's where my mind kind of was. Yeah. Because when I was watching him convulsing on the ground, kind of looked like a seizure. But then if it was just the wind taken out of him, I was I had the wind taken out of me. The very first thing I always do, and most people do, is they spit their milk out. Yeah. Well, or you'll keel over. Had that, that many professional contests. It was it was shady, but I do know now neurologically he wasn't right because he was knocked out. He was knocking out in that corner in yes. the seventh round, and even in the sixth he looked damaged, very damaged. I'd have pulled him out in the sixth, never mind the seventh. Yeah, I completely agree with you, man. He wasn't right, and listen. People talk. People keep making these boxing to UFC comparisons. This is something I've talked about. For a long time, the UFC fans are way more forgiving of their fighters. There's a culture in UFC. I've talked to several guys who compete in that world. And it's just okay if you're just having a shitty day. Maybe maybe you're just not really focused, even in sparring. Where you just say, you know what, fuck it. I'm tapping out. I'm just having a bad night, fellas. And no one in the gym judges you for that. But in boxing, you're called a quitter. And all these labels are thrown on you. And that's why... Fighters die in boxing, and they don't die in MMA. It's just something I think boxing fans could take from the UFC fans and the fighters 
the trainers, the corners can take from that culture and do a better job with. Uh, Ros- I'm, I'm with you, man. They could have stopped that fight after the sixth round. It was a vi- it, Rosario had moments early on and even in the middle rounds, but he was getting beat up. It was somewhat reminiscent, not exactly, of course. It just there are elements of Chavez Taylor in there, where one guy, completely different styles, of course, but one guy looking good at times, but he was taking a fucking ass whooping. That's what I saw. Now, I wanted to ask you a question. You know the way at the end of this card, a lot of people have been talking is Jamel Charlo pound for pound, right? Mm-hmm. I think a man who's like in the top 10 pound for pound conversation, I think another person who is going very unrecognized for what he did this weekend is Maris Bredis. I agree. Because he became a three-time cruiserweight champion. And I'm wondering if he has nearly as much volition. Because the only person to actually beat him, it's not like he was fighting a Tony Harrison. He fought one of the best fighters pound for pound on the damn planet in Alexander Rusik in his prime in the cruiserweight division. And he fought him to a very close competitive fight. Not the only person who beat him, you know? wasn't a guy who's been knocked out before. Um, do, do you think like Mark Freitas has gone underappreciated? Because his performance against Stork, because some people are saying the fight was boring, was actually, he performed very well. I completely agree. And I'm not going to get into the double standards debate and everything else, but I feel like we've been down this road before. I think that some of it is because Bradis is not American. I think some of it is because he's a cruiserweight. And in the United States, the cruiserweight division division just does not get respect. And if you look at Bradis, he very well may have lost to that German fighter, Noel Gever, in the first season Noel opener. Noel Gever. Noel, okay. A lot of people felt that was a robbery. But even let's say if he if uh, you felt that was a robbery. You look at his other victories and you just look at who he's fought. His resume overall is better than both Charlo brothers in terms of who he's fought. Now, he did lose to Usyk, but what's the shame in losing to Usyk? There's no shame in that. Uh, so if you're considering Jermel Charlo for the pound-for-pound pound list, I think you have to look at Bradys and consider him as well. I'm consistent. To, to me, they're just outside the top 10 right now. They're on the bubble. On the, I remember the first time I called in. I remember that. I'm on the bubble. Yes. Because <laughs> I think we were arguing about Josh Taylor. Because I think you rate Josh Taylor, which I, I understand. I don't know. But. I never mentioned Josh Taylor. I actually okay. mentioned Kazuko Ayoka. Oh, okay. Okay. Those were the two I mentioned. And, and you, you could absolutely Josh make Taylor an argument. Also. Yes. Yeah, of course. But, um, yeah, I, I want, I want one, one little talk. Um, what would Jamel Charlo have to do to get rated above Errol Spence? Because on resume, name recognition and stuff, Spence has slightly better names. But in terms of accomplishments and overall achievements so far, Jamel's done more. That's an absolutely valid argument. Um, it's tough. I mean, sometimes timing is everything and sometimes things just work out. I I think, look, Jason Rosario is not the second best junior middleweight in the world. I didn't think he was before, uh, this fight, but because he had unified titles, he had beat J-Rock, 
he had the titles and therefore he he was ranked number two. So you had number one versus number two, which makes sense. You got to go off of recent accomplishments and everything. But you could absolutely make an argument that Jermel Charlo has uh, a better resume right now, or at least better accomplishments than Spence. I don't rate Spence's win over Mikey Garcia that highly. Mikey Garcia is is a lightweight that just doesn't like making weight. So he fights above his weight and he's trying to make more money against the welterweights. But um, I think Spence, the one thing I'll give Spence credit for, dude, he did go over to the UK to win his title. You know, the Charlos haven't done that. And a lot of American fighters won't do that. I, I do. I rate that highly. Terrence Crawford did that. He went over and got his first world title on the road. I rate things like that very highly. It's why I rate Usyk so highly. But um, we got to see how Spence looks against Danny Garcia. If if yeah. Spence dominates Danny Garcia, then he justifies his position. But if he struggles, or we don't know what's going to happen in that fight. Well, then maybe we can revisit this discussion after that fight. Yeah, fair enough. Fair enough, Mike. Thanks for having me on. Thanks so, for calling in, man. Good care. to hear from you, Mark. There he goes, guys. Mark with unrivaled boxing talk and news. Again, make sure you check out his channel, guys. He does some awesome stuff. Okay, so back to this card. Let me talk about the undercard real quick. Um, none of these results were really surprising. Um, Bakram Mirza Zaliev. Improved to 18-0, the Russian TKO4 win. He's a good-looking junior middleweight prospect. There's a lot of prospects in that division that look really promising. Israel Madrimov, uh, Conwell, Charles Conwell, who has a fight coming up. Uh, Trent Nampereel in the chat was just talking about that. That division at the very top, I think perhaps is overrated, but the talent coming up, the new generation is going to start flooding the gates pretty soon. Most of those guys are going to be at 160 within a year or so. But uh, the depth, because of the youth there, the, the prospects coming up at 54 is really, really looking strong, man. Uh, John Riel Casabayero, TKO3 win, defends his WBO bantamweight title. A fight between him and Nayoya Inoue would be great. I'd love to see it. Would absolutely love to see it. However, I would favor Inouye. He has fought the better opposition. He's beat the other better opposition. And um, I really think that fight against Naoya Inouye is going to make him just a much better fighter overall. It was a proving ground for him. He had to bite down. He had to fight through injuries and cuts. I want to say he broke a bone in his face. He was. I, I don't think he was hurt in that fight, but he was definitely buzzed slightly and pushed back. So uh, he that was a huge win, man. I think people are overlooking that win. So I would favor Inouye, but I'd love to see Inouye Casamero. Are we going to see it? Probably not, which sucks. Daniel Roman, UD12, uh, UD12 win over Carlos Payano. Good, good quality fight. Um, maybe it wasn't as action-packed as people would have liked, but that was a good quality win for Roman. Gets back in the win column after losing earlier this year. Luis Neri, UD12 win over uh, Mexican, uh, now based out of Long Beach, Aaron Alameda, who maybe people underrated coming into this fight, and maybe people were overrating Neri a little bit. I tweeted something, and, you know, maybe I'm going to get myself in trouble with that tweet, but Luis Neri, performance-enhancing drug issues, weight issues at 118, looked so dominant there, right? But when he's 
being tested and when he's being tested for PEDs and he's fighting above 118, he just hasn't looked as dominant recently. Now, he is trying to make some changes, you know, he's uh, with new trainers, he's trying to, you know, change his style. I get all that. But Alameda may be better than we thought, but this was his second fight outside of Mexico. Like I say, he's a Mexican-born fighter, now fights out of Long Beach, which is a little town like an hour south of L.A. Um, This is is only his second fight out of Mexico. It just, I I expected more from Neri. I just expected a little more from him. Anyway, he wins the vacant WBC 122 title. This should not have been for a title. This was not a title-worthy fight, but it's the WBC. And not only are they all in on the uh, the PBC business, they're all in on the Lewis Neri business. Also, another 122 fight. Brandon Figueroa, TKO, 10 win, defends his WBA 122-pound title. So, I talked about this last week in a preview. I like that elements of this undercard. These were all mismatches for the most part, even though they didn't all play out like that necessarily in the ring. They were all pretty much mismatches. You knew who was going to win. However, you had some stories to build to here, okay? You had the Russian junior middleweight prospect fighting there. Maybe one day he fights Jermel Charlo, right? Maybe you're building to something there. Also, you had three fighters at 122 pounds. Daniel Roman, Louis Neri, Brandon Figueroa. Neri and Figueroa both have titles. They're both PBC guys. There is absolutely no freaking reason those two should not fight each other next and unify their titles early next year. Also, Daniel Roman kind of did a one-off deal with the PBC. If they want to re-sign him, bring him back, why not put him in the ring against the winner of that fight? Those three guys, at least those two, Figueroa and Neri, should be fighting each other within the next six months. If they don't, shame on PBC for not making that happen because you have a perfect lead-in. Everybody saw them on this card. So now you have a story to build with here. Build for that fight, man. If there's a mandatory, take care of the mandatory. But let's get to that unification. All right? Unification is always a good thing. Okay. Let's talk about Jermel Charlo, KO8, Jason Rosario. Knocks him down in the first round, sixth round, and then, of course, the eighth round where the stoppage happened. Unifies the WBC, WBA, IBF, and ring lineal 154-pound titles, and is now, in my opinion, the clear, number one, undisputed, legitimate champion at junior middleweight. I don't care that Patrick Teixeira has a title. He's a title holder. Huge difference between champion and title holder. Jermel Charlo is now a legitimate boxing champion and has proven he is an elite-level fighter. The win over Tony Harrison, good win. I think that's even a better win, personally, than this win over Jason Rosario, who now, it seems, kind of hit lightning in the bottle against Julian J. Rock Williams, right place, right time. I still think he's at top 10 junior middleweight, but probably lower half of the top 10. I think there are, I, I think J. Rock could beat him in the rematch. I'm not sure, but um, I just, I don't think he's an elite level talent. In fact, Tony Harrison maybe could beat Jason Rosario. That'd be an interesting fight to watch. Uh, Anyway, the knockout, again, was legit. This was not a dive. Stop with the Jason Rosario took a dive thing. I'm sick of this bullshit. Every time boxing fans, casual boxing fans usually, see something weird that doesn't look right to them, it doesn't compute, they call the dive. They call it, oh, the fix was in. 
Stop with that. This was not a fix. This was not a dive. This was a guy who was neurologically damaged and was taken out off a jab to the body. Uh, we, we don't, you're not in his body. If this was a dive, it was the stupidest worst dive ever. Why not take a dive when you got dropped in the first round? Or why not take a dive when you got dropped in the sixth round? How about taking a dive when you are falling asleep, unconscious in the the corner between the seventh and eighth round? That's when you take a dive, okay? You don't take a dive off of a fluke jab uh, when you're backpedaling. Um, it wasn't in the center ring. It was kind of more in a corner of the ring. But that's not how you take a dive. We've seen dives in the history of boxing and UFC and all sports, not just fight sports. We've seen them. This wasn't a dive. Stop with that shit, okay? This was a legitimate knockout win. When you say things like that, you're taking away Jermell Charlo's accomplishment. He fought great in this fight. It was the best win of his career. So stop taking that away from him. Legitimate knockout, all right? Um, I'm just sick of you. Know, fake. People on Twitter, fake. It wasn't fake. It was real. Okay. I already talked about Rosario's resume. And I'm not going to sit here and say he's trash because some people are doing that now. Rosario's not trash. He's a top 10 junior middleweight. But outside of the win against Julian J. Rock Williams, his resume is piss poor. He's good enough to be competitive with the elite. And on the right night, he could strike lightning in a bottle, the elite of the division. On the right night, he could strike lightning in a bottle and score an upset win. But he is not going to be a consistent top-level junior middleweight performer. Two or three years from now, is it going to be ranked? I don't know. I don't know. We'll find out. So, Jermel Charlo. I don't quite have him on my pound-for-pound list yet in the top 10. That's not me hating. It's not me being a Charlo hater. It's me being consistent. And once again, I will repeat, I don't have Marius Bradis on my pound-for-pound list quite yet. I don't have Josh Taylor or Jose Carlos Ramirez on my pound-for-pound top 10 list yet. All those guys are on the bubble and need one more win to solidify their position and bump them up onto that elite list to knock somebody off and take their place on that list. For Jermel Charlo, beating Tony Harrison and Jason Rosario, that doesn't cut it. And even for a guy like Josh Taylor, who has, I think, his wins over Baranchek and Regis Progray are undervalued and underrated by some. But the way he scored those wins, struggling at times and everything else, and the same thing with Jose Carlos Ramirez, his win over Maurice Hooker, good win. I just want to see those two fight each other, and then the winner of that fight, boom, you're on the list. Marius Brady's great, great fight with uh, Alexander Usyk a couple years ago, came up a little short. No shame in that. Good quality wins otherwise. But I want to see him, you know, people have asked about this. Is there anything left for him to accomplish at Cruiserweight? Obviously not, but I don't think there's anything for him at heavyweight that makes sense. If I'm Marius Bradis, what I'd really like to see him do and how he could get on the pound-for-pound list for me is stay in that division, rematch Glovaki, because you had a really, really controversial fight there. I'd love to see him rematch uh, the German fighter that got ripped off in the season one of the World Boxing Super Series. I'd love to see him rematch both of those guys. I'd like to see him fight some of these prospects coming up. Defend your ring lineal championship of the Cruiserweight division four, five, six times against some of the higher-rated contenders and some of these higher-rated prospects coming up. Set a legitimate 
precedent there, a legacy, because none of the other cruiserweight champions have done that. They've all moved up to heavyweight, most of them with lackluster results. If Bradius becomes the one guy who stays at cruiserweight, and for the next three, four, five years reigns as champion, that's pound-for-pound level shit. And that's Hall of Fame level shit. He could do that if he stays as cruiser. If he goes up to heavyweight, he'll make more money, but it will all go down in smoke because he's not a heavyweight fighter. He just does not have the power to, to score well in the heavyweight division right now. All right, one other fight to review, guys. Long episode, but we had a huge boxing weekend, right? Jermel Charlo, unanimous decision win over Sergey Drevenchenko, defends his WBC middleweight title. Now, some people, again, were calling him the best middleweight in the world. He's not. Maybe he will prove to be in time, but he hasn't proven it yet. Right now, Canelo Alvarez and Gennady Golovkin have accomplished far more just in the last couple of years, than Jamal Charlo, Jamal Charlo has in his entire career. So pump the brakes on that best middleweight in the world stuff. He's currently number three, though. I think he should rate above Demetrius Andrade and any other middleweight contender slash prospect that you see out there. He's done enough to earn that, even though it's pretty much off of one fight. But beating Derevyanchenko is not easy. Derevyanchenko came up short against very good fighters. Danny Jacobs, Gennady Golovkin, Jamal Charlo. He's a damn good fighter and still a top 10 middleweight. Now, he was softened up, and I talked about this a lot, by Jacobs, by Jack Colke, by Golovkin. Uh, so this probably wasn't the best version of Sergey Kovalev that, or Sergey Kovalev, Sergey Derevyanchenko that uh, Jamal Charlo beat, but a still damn good version. So I Beating him the way he did, because Charlo fought great in this fight, and he dominated, that puts him at the top, the elite level in the middleweight division. He has proven that now. Something that really surprised me, though, I was, I feel like the only one who talked about size being a major factor in this fight. Nobody else talked about it. I listened to the podcast. I read the preview articles on all the different sites. No one talked about this shit, yet What did I tell you guys? Size matters. And Charlo will dwarf Derevyanchenko in the ring Saturday night. And what did you see? And it played a factor in this fight. Derevyanchenko was able to land body shots on Golovkin. He wasn't able to do that against Charlo. Uh, I think, I want to say, because I looked at the punch numbers, and I know you guys hate CompuBox, but he landed 34 more body punches. Derevyanchenko did. 34 more body shots on Triple G than Charlo. Why? Some of it's styles and everything else. Some of it's speed and all those things, yes. But it's also the fact that Golovkin's 5'10", I think like 70-inch reach, and Charlo's 6 feet tall, 73-inch reach. It was much harder for Derevianchenko to get inside and get those body shots off the way he was able to do against Golovkin because he was in there with a taller, longer, younger, fresher, stronger guy. Bottom line, size matters. Okay, what else? Uh, of course, there are immediate comparisons to Golovkin's win over Derevyanchenko to Charlo's wins. And now fans are saying that Charlo will smoke Triple G and Canelo. Y'all need to slow down with that shit. Styles make fights. And here's a stat that might you might not remember. Golovkin landed 24 more punches on Sergey Derevyanchenko than Charlo did. Golovkin also dropped Derevyanchenko, and busted his face up even worse than Charlo did, all right? 
he wore Derevyanchenko down and busted him up, and Charlo got that version of Derevyanchenko. He's coming off a year layoff. I get it. He was rested. He was good. He had a great camp, all that. But it was not the version that Golovkin faced, and Golovkin didn't face the version that Jacobs faced. Let's be honest here. So making these comparisons and these triangle theories, guys, it doesn't work. It doesn't work that way. These triangle theories just don't work. The biggest difference was Derevyanchenko was able to put leather on Golovkin. He wasn't able to land as many punches on Charlo. I mentioned before, 34 more body punches. I think he landed 30 more jabs on Golovkin. He was not able to jab with Charlo. Charlo was simply too long for him, and he could not get the jab off from the outside. He couldn't get inside and work the body. Uh, a lot of that came down to styles and the, the body matchup and everything else. So you guys got to stop making these triangle theories and these comparisons. Good win by Jamal Charlo. It, it, years from now, we probably will be talking about him as the better Charlo brother. At least that's the way it looks. That's what the eye test says. But uh, that remains to be seen. Either way, very good wins by both Charlos. They've proven their elite just outside the top 10 pound for pound, in my opinion. But that's just my opinion. All right, really, really quick. Let's do a quick preview. This Wednesday, not a whole lot to talk about, but this Wednesday, ESPN Plus uh, picks up a car from the UK, O'Hara Davies from London, fighting Tyrone McKenna from Northern Ireland. These are 140-pounders. They do have a common opponent between them. That was Jack Catterall, who beat both of them by decision. This Saturday, October 3rd, PBC on FS1. They're doing a card from the Microsoft Theater in Los Angeles. And our friend, Ray Flores, will be calling the action there. The Barrientes twins, who were uh, guests on the show recently, they will be making their PBC debut, their American debut. They've both had two fights, but they were in Tijuana, Mexico. And their American television debut. So a big, big night for those two guys. Uh, Those prospects are going to be fun to watch. So you got PBC and FS1. You also have an ESPN Plus card from the bubble inside the MGM Grand in Las Vegas. Jose Chon Zapeda is fighting Ivan Branchik, 12 rounds, 140 pounders. Uh, let's see, Zapeda coming off an injury, or he had an injury loss to Terry Flanagan in 2015 and a majority decision loss to Jose Ramirez in 2019. A lot of people felt he won that fight. So regarding, you know, if you if you... Disregard that freak injury against Flanagan, and you you go the other way with those swing rounds against Ramirez. Zapata might be an undefeated fighter. Ivan Baranchek, one loss in his career uh, to uh, Taylor, uh, Josh Taylor in 2019. Of course, World Boxing Super Series. So these are two good, I think, underappreciated fighters. That's a good matchup, man. Zapata and Baranchek, good matchup there. All right, guys. I said about full today. Long show. We're going to take a knee. We're going to retire for the evening, but we'll be back next Monday to uh, review everything coming up this weekend and preview what will be coming up. Next big card is going to be October 17th. Lomachenko Lopez. I'll be doing a live fight party for that on my channel. We'll talk more about that coming up, guys. Thank you so much. And see us at the fights.